I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. A warning before we start. The material in this podcast is very dark. We'll be discussing violent crimes against children. We'll try to be restrained where we can, but to tell this story, we sometimes have to be pretty graphic. Ready? It's 1978. Five years earlier in Houston, teenager Elmer Wayne Henley had shot the candy man Dean Coral and took the police to the boat shed where Coral buried most of the 29 young males he'd abducted, tortured, and murdered. The case, horrific as it was, faded from the headlines as if it never happened. Then in 78, John Wayne Gacy hit the news. Chicago Tribune reporter Michael Sneed remembers that very well. She was about to leave the country on a different story when she got the inside scoop. Just before I left, I get a phone call from a tremendous source who used to call me the pervert queen. And he'd say, Sneed, I got a story for you. It is right up your alley. And I said, what? He said, bodies, boys buried in a basement under a house. I said, I'm leaving in an hour and a half. When is this story going to break? And he said, how long are you going to be gone? I said, probably a week. It can wait. So I hung up, went down to Jonestown. A week later, I called the office, and all of a sudden, I'm no longer the star. Nobody really wants to talk to me. And I said, what has happened? And the editor said, Sneed, you just missed the best Chicago story in decades. A guy named John Wayne Gacy buried all these kids under his house after he killed them. Yeah, that was the story that got away. Between 1972 and 78, contractor John Wayne Gacy, a guy who entertained kids as Pogo the Clown, raped, 
tortured, and murdered 33 young men, then buried most of them in the basement of his Chicago home. At the beginning of this podcast, remember I said, there's always more to a story than you hear on the news? Despite everything that's been written or reported about Gacy, his crude paintings, his crimes, his victims, the investigation, conviction, his execution, there's one part of the story that's always left out. Until now. For 10 days in December of 1978, a four-man tactical team from the Des Plaines Police Station trailed Gacy 24-7. Those 10 days have every element of a 1970s cop show like Starsky and Hutch or Hawaii Five-0. It's got undercover cops with long hair and sideburns, high-speed chases, drugs, and harrowing confessions. It's got buddy cops trading banter with suspects over beers, and in this case, trading beers with one of America's most horrific serial killers. Remember, this was the 70s, and these were cops from the suburbs of Chicago. They thought they were looking for one missing teen. They had no idea what Gacy was hiding in his basement. It was the most important surveillance operation they'd handle in their lives. Ten days they'd never forget. These are the guys who arrested the killer clown. Get ready. It's a bumpy ride. For ID, this is the clown and the candy man. I'm Jacqueline Bynan. Former Detective Ron Robinson was a member of the Delta Tactical Unit in Des Plaines in 1978. He's never talked to the media about those 10 days in December. Until now, he agreed to talk to me. I'll tell you one thing, Jacqueline. If you'd have met John Wayne Gacy, you would have liked him. He was a very outgoing, gregarious type of individual. Appeared to have a good sense of humor. And he did conceal his dark side very well. And a dark side he did have. It started with a missing teen two weeks before Christmas in December of 1978. The parents of 15-year-old Robert Peast walked into the police station and reported their son was missing. And who was Rob Peast? Rob Peast was a teenager, student at Maine West High School. He worked a little part-time job at Nesson Pharmacy. Now, December 11th was also his mother's birthday, and he was to get off of work at 9 o'clock. His mother went to pick him up from work and bring him home to have a little birthday celebration for her at the house. The other kids were there, and the husband, birthday cake, that type of thing. And he told his mom, well, I'll be back in a couple of minutes. I want to talk to this guy about a job in construction. And he went outside to talk to this guy, and he was never seen again. The mother waited about five minutes, and the story didn't come back in. And she kind of checked around outside for him couldn't find him, went home, and when he didn't turn up at the house, I believe it was about 11 o'clock that evening, she called the police department to report him as a missing person. And he did not fit the profile for a missing person. So right away you start thinking foul play. So then we had to find out who this guy was that he went to talk to about a job in construction. And I believe this was Ronnie Adams and Jimmy Piquel. 
that did this part of the investigation, and they determined that the only person in construction that was in Nesson that night was John Wayne Gacy. Well, we were actually able to track him down and wound up out at Gacy's house on Somerdale. Gacy was just getting ready to leave, and they wanted to talk to him about peace. Well, he denied any knowledge of peace. He denied talking to peace. We didn't know what we were talking about. And then he, he said, you know, my uncle just passed away. I got to get out of here. What's the matter with you guys? Don't you have any respect for the dead? Well, what we didn't know was that Robert Peace was three feet over their head up in the attic already. Casey had already killed him. Oh, my God. Yep. But then again, you have to remember, John was a necrophiliac, so John brought him down from the attic and spent the night with him and then put him in the trunk of the car to dump in the, the Desplaines River off of the I-55 Kankakee Bridge. Talk about no respect for the dead. Desplaines police learned that John Wayne Gacy had a previous conviction in Iowa for sodomy of a child. He received 10 years, but he served only 18 months. There was no sex registry in 1970, so the conviction didn't follow him to Chicago. But his behavior and that sodomy conviction was enough to convince a judge to sign a search warrant for Gacy's house the next day. Detectives were thinking maybe Gacy was holding Rob Peace hostage as some kind of sex slave. Remember, when the detectives entered the house, no one but Gacy knew there were 27 bodies in the basement. Now, the detectives looked everywhere, including the crawl space. The entrance was a trap door in the front closet. They dropped down. There, the earth was muddy, it was covered with a layer of lime, and the sump pump running constantly. But there was no mound of dirt to suggest anyone was buried there. And that was because Gacy had run out of space and for the past few months had been throwing his last five victims in the river. In the house, though, they found a lot of strange items. Handcuffs, fake police badges, sex toys, a board with holes drilled in it, not unlike the board Dean Coral the Candyman used to strap his victims to and torture them in Houston. And there were other items, and they raised some serious questions over the next few days. We were advised that they had recovered items belonging to five or six missing persons from John's house on that first search warrant. Property that you wouldn't necessarily give away. We had also gotten other information that uh, he had twice been investigated on missing persons that had worked for John. Seems like a lot of people that worked for John came up missing. And none of these missing persons had ever been found. You don't have connections with five or six missing persons that have never turned up, and they're just walking around someplace and have chosen never to pick up the phone and call mom and dad on their birthday or Christmas. That justifies logic. You just don't have those kind of connections with missing people. Most people don't know any. So we actually thought at that time, yeah, he's killing him. It's got to be what it is. It simply didn't occur to the police. Remember, these cops had no idea what they were dealing with, that everyone they were looking for 
had been just inches under their feet. The Desplaines police set up three teams. Detectives would interview everyone who knew Robert Peast. Another team would investigate John Wayne Gacy and everyone who knew him. And then there was the Delta unit, Dave Hackmeister, Bob Schultz, who passed away in 2018, and Ron Robinson. Their job was simple. Follow John Gacy everywhere he went. It would be a 24-7 stakeout. Now, normally these guys were assigned to drug-related investigations, so they had to look the part. They had long hair and mustaches or beards. They wore T-shirts and jeans, batik jackets and sneakers. They drove old junker cars with big stereo speakers rigged up to tape decks. Ron's car was called the Batmobile, a jacked-up 73 Plymouth. Fun fact, the Batmobile didn't last too long on this gig. Early on, it caught fire as Ron sat in the cold watching Gacy's house. How did you and Bob Schultz and the the other team, what were you told to do? We were going to follow him, and you can do two kinds of surveillance. You can do an overt or a covert. We didn't feel we'd even have the manpower to do a covert surveillance. So the overt surveillance was pretty much the only choice that we really had for him. Ron Robinson and Bob Schultz partnered up in two different cars on the noon to midnight shift and Dave Hackmeister from midnight to noon. Their goal, no matter what, keep Gacy in sight so he couldn't destroy any evidence. Here's Dave Hackmeister. That first night, I sat by myself on Somerdale Avenue for quite a while. Gacy didn't appear until about 10 in the morning. We're in December, and it was so cold that I had to keep my car running. So Gacy drives by. He could see the exhaust from my car billowing up from the car. So he knew that we had interest in him. He spotted the car, and the first thing he did was wave to me as he drove by. I was on the midnight shift. You know, I sat there by myself. I really had no communication with dispatch. I thought to myself, this is really not good with no communication out here. I went to my boss, and I said, listen, I really think I need a, a partner on this case. I don't really know how dangerous this guy is. And that's when Mike Albrecht, my partner, was assigned the case to work with me. We were midnight to noon, and a lot of times Gacy liked to drive around at night to do his job estimates, too. He would tell us, you know, that's no traffic. I can go there, look at a job from even the outside in, kind of see how much is involved and make his job estimates that way. And then when we got back to his place, whatever time in the morning it was, he would usually come up and tell me, well, we're going to go here or there or wherever we may be going the next morning. He was pleasant when he had to be, but occasionally he would get aggravated with us and get tired of us following him, like, everywhere, and he would occasionally try to lose us. Did you ever see him looking at, at guys or anything on the street or anything that would give you that indication? There was one time that we were following Gacy in the city, probably about two or three in the morning. He's going through a gay neighborhood. And he happened to spot some guy walking down the street, and Mike brought it to my attention. He says, did you see how he was looking at that guy? I mean, he just about turned his head totally around looking at this young man. So you could tell that he was really wanting to do something, but he couldn't do anything because we were so close to him. They didn't know it at the time, but late at night was when Gacy went hunting, picking up young men off the streets of Chicago. He had a car that looked like an undercover police vehicle, equipped with a spotlight. 
Pretending to be a cop was an easy way to get a young male late at night into the car. And once they were inside, it was the beginning of the end. Being followed 24-7, though, put a damper on that. When Gacy went into a private residence, the cops sat outside. And when he went into a public place, they were right behind him. You know, it's extremely tough to lose somebody when you're sitting on the next bar stool from him in a coffee shop. And even if he got up and used the bathroom, we go there too. So, you know, bathrooms have windows. And John would have popped out a window and then where would we be? And I remember one night we went to the, the uh, bowling alley. Some people they introduced us to as construction workers and other people they introduced us as police officers implying that we were his bodyguards. So you would follow him into... Uh, public places like a restaurant, a coffee shop, places like that. So you got to know him. What did you guys talk about? Bob got into a big discussion with him one night. He claimed to have been the chef for the Chicago Blackhawks, and we never determined whether that was true or not. But we talked to him about what he was doing with his business, what type of places he had remodeled, that type of stuff. Well... What were your impressions of him? He sounds like a pretty affable, kind of outgoing guy. When we were at the bowling alley, people would come up and talk to him. Those were things that we were watching. Are people coming to him, or does he have to go to everybody? Because that'll tell you a lot about somebody's personality. But no, people would come up to him. We were in the state of Illinois building, downtown Chicago, and former Governor Stratton was there, and they knew each other, and he came up and was talking to the former governor. They had a nice little conversation. He knew people. He was a Democratic precinct captain, and he was also commissioner of streets and lighting in Norwood. So he was politically connected. Dave Hackmeister and Mike Albrecht worked the midnight to noon shift. I spoke with them in Chicago. They hadn't seen each other in a while, but the years melted away and they were back in December of 1978. The very first time we had contact with them, we relieved Robbie and Schultz over at the Moose Lodge. The Moose Lodge and his planes. And, and my, we went in, we made yeah. a decision, hey, yep. without much direction. My mother was there. Yeah. He was in the, the yeah. banquet area, and my mom was, because my dad was a, an original member of the Moose. Every time we went into a place, people just gravitated towards Gacy. I mean, I just thought it was amazing, though, when we made the decision to go in, sit yeah. a couple tables away from them. And that first time the waitress came up with a couple of beers for us and said it's on a gentleman over there. Yep. Well. Wow, unbelievable. Gacy bought them a beer, so they bought him one in return. From there we went to the pot and pan, and we were sitting across from him, and he said, yeah, sit down with me, come on to my table. Yeah. And as long as you're, just, as long as you're yeah. gonna follow me, you might as well sit with me. That was great. Yeah, he thought he had our number, that's for sure. Remember the, one of the first things he said to us is, never going to spend a day in jail for this. Clowns can get away with murder. Hey, he was a yeah. great con man. He was unbelievable. As great a con man as he was, if you remember, one of us would let our guard down and the other would oh, yeah. recognize it and say, hey, <clears throat> come on, Dave, let's pick it up a little bit. Let's pay attention. And then you, a while later, might let your guard down and I'd remind you. Gacy had so many friends and supporters, it made it tough for the surveillance team to get really close. So they came up with a plan. 
we decided we'd try to put pressure on all of these loyal followers of his. And the investigators, they were nonstop. They interviewed them at work, at home, at recreational areas, and they were starting to get tired of seeing the police. So they eventually began to back off. As they took a step back, the surveillance team took a step forward into Gacy's life. When we'd have our conversations over a bar situation or for breakfast, you know, we were feeding them information that we knew would uh, get under his skin. Like, um, I don't know what they're looking for, but they're thinking about a second search warrant. So I don't know what you got to hide. But we knew that would, it would get them a little bit. Here's Ron Robinson again. So did you go to dinner with Gacy? Yeah, we stuck him with the check. <laughs> Bob and I told him we want to go to a nice restaurant because, you know, we're, we're sick and tired of eating all of this McBurger garbage. So we went to the steakhouse. And he made the comment that, for all you know, I got a gun pointed at you under the table. And with this, we flipped the table and stood up to make sure it didn't. Well, that made a very big mess in the restaurant. And so John had to pay for all the food and everything. And then you got to remember what Bob and I looked like. I was in a fatigue jacket, Levi's, boots, a sweatshirt, unshaven, long hair. And Bob looked worse than me. And here we are in this real nice restaurant. And this really startled a lot of people. And we had to let them know, no, we're the police, it's okay. Nothing like fine dining with a serial murderer. Remember, these cops didn't know the extent of Gacy's crimes at this point, and they weren't set up for this kind of surveillance. Gacy made the most of it. And a lot of things went wrong, a lot. I'm still amazed about it how this evolved. I don't think there was ever a surveillance like this previous. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. Have you ever heard the expression, perfect is the enemy of good? 
I think about that a lot, especially when it comes to my body and health, because perfect does not exist. It's a total trap. Noom isn't into this perfection thing either. Its unique approach is tailored to each person's psychology and biology. From coaching to recipes, Noom's app provides personalized information to help you on your journey, no one else's journey. I also think it's great that Noom doesn't restrict what you can eat, and it doesn't shame you for treating yourself. And treat yourself, you should. What's more, Noom's approach is grounded in science. They've even published more than 30 peer-reviewed scientific articles about how they work. To date, Noom has helped more than 5.2 million people lose weight by helping them build new habits for a healthier lifestyle. So why not give it a try? Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Now, Ron, I'm reading something here that you actually rode in the car with Gacy. How did, am I correct, and how did that come about? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, that's kind of good. Uh, we were up in Waukegan, and John drove like a maniac. And I believe he did it because it was the one thing he could do that would get to us. I mean, 50 miles an hour on side streets, 80, 90 miles an hour on the main thoroughfares, and there was a lot of snow and a lot of ice. And I blew the transmission out of the unmarked car that I was driving. John was in front of us, but he came back, wanted to find out what was wrong. Picture that. Chicago winter, snow, ice, freezing cold, side of the road. Ron's car dead. His partner, Bob Schultz, pulled up behind, and Gacy stopped and walked back to Ron's car. Gacy was five foot eight and solidly built. Ron loomed over him. He's around 6'3". He's got size 13 feet and weighed around 250 pounds. I, I laid it all on John. I said, John, you and your crazy jiving, you just got me in big trouble with my boss. I blew the transmission out of the car. They're probably going to suspend me, and it's all your fault because you drive like a maniac. And he said, oh, Ron, Ron, I- I'm sorry. I- I'll tell you, well, you want to ride with me? <laughs> sure, John, I'll ride with you. And I got into the car. I spent the day riding with him. My chief wasn't too happy about it, and he thought I took an unnecessary risk. We didn't know if John had a gun on him, and I I made light of that. I said, well, I got two on me. But uh, he wanted to find out just how much we knew, how far we were in the investigation, so he could plan his next move, and that's it. We weren't going to let him on to anything. But, of course, we were going to report back to our superiors as to just what his concerns were, which is what I did. The surveillance guys made a lot of mistakes, but so did Gacy. Abducting Rob Peast was Gacy's first big mistake. But what happened next might have been his second big mistake. Was that the night you went into the washroom? That is correct. By day seven of being followed 24 hours a day, Gacy was feeling the pressure, but keeping the friendly contractor with nothing to hide facade in place. 
That evening, he invited Ron Robinson and Bob Schultz in for dinner, and they sat around his kitchen table eating fried shrimp. When we got to the house, there was an odor there, but he took us through that house like Grant took Richmond and into the family room. Now, the family room was on a slab, okay, had its own heating unit. The rest of the house was on, had a crawl space under it, and the heat was underneath there. After we were sitting there for a while, Bob said, well, I got to use the jam. Where's the jam? So Bob goes into the bathroom. But when he came back, his eyeballs were rolling, kind of telling me something. And what it was was this putrid odor. And after nine years on the police department, you know what that is. When did he start to get rattled? His demeanor seemed to change. He was not as open with us as he had been earlier in the investigation. And he was more disheveled. Like, a personal hygiene was, was taking a back seat to what he was doing. I mean, he had 27 bodies buried in a crawl space, unbeknownst to us. And he knew that he could not get rid of the evidence. So it had to be killing him on the inside, knowing that we were not going to let up on this investigation. At this point, we were like dogs with a bone. I mean, we, we, we were going to do anything it took to bring this to justice. To make things worse, Gacy wasn't thrilled that Desplaines detectives were hounding his young employees, David Cram and Michael Rossi. By now, the detectives knew Gacy had those guys digging trenches in the crawl space under the house. Then there was the smell in the house that Bob Schultz reported. Evidence was adding up. They were close to having enough for a second search warrant. And then on the evening of day nine, Gacy went into his lawyer's office and didn't come out. Ron, tell me about the night at the lawyer's office. It was another cold, rotten night, and we set up. He went into the attorney's office, and an attorney comes out and says, hey, why don't you guys come in and sit in our reception room? We have a pot of coffee on for you, and we got donuts from Dunkin' Donut, you know, like that's the get-all for every police officer, you know. They, we take in Dunkin' Donuts intravenously, people think. We told him because of what his demeanor was, oh, no, that's all right. We're going to stay out here. We'll be fine. Well, what we didn't know was that Gacy was unloading to them about all the things that he had done. The final 24 hours of surveillance were wild. No one tells the story better than the guys who'd been on Gacy's tail for nine days. Let me set this up for you. It's midnight, December 21st. Ron Robinson and Bob Schultz were sitting outside Gacy's lawyer's office. Gacy had been inside for hours. Dave Hackmeister and Mike Albrecht arrived to relieve them. So Dave and I were talking, and I said, well, we got to go in there and find out what's going on. So we're walking up to the building and knock on the windows in his office uh, when his two attorneys, Sam Amorati and Leroy Stevens, come out of the office. They see us standing there. They invite us in. They bring a couple chairs out and say, whatever you guys want, you know, we're going to take care of you. We'll look at them, bring a bottle of booze out. 
just being overly nice. They were never concerned with us before, so we figured something's up. So we tell his attorneys, okay, listen, we have to have an eyeball on, on John. And they said, okay, well, he's in our back offices. We'll bring him out to the lobby. And uh, he's actually sleeping right now. We'll and one thing we had been told is that sometimes in the morning when he would wake up, he would become violent. So when they say Gacy's in the back sleeping, we kind of get a surprised look on our face and we say, well, just be careful because we've been told when Gacy gets up, he can be a real animal. He can be vicious. So they get the shock look on their face. They said, no, we'll get Gacy. So they go in the back and get John. And we see them come around. And Gacy got on the couch, lay down, and he was sleeping. And Sam Amirani, I just remember this so clearly, he sits on a chair, and Gacy is three, four feet away from him, laying down. He has this book. It's called Rights of Defendant. And he opens a book, and he just stares at Gacy. Never looks at the book. Just staring at Gacy this whole time. Short time later, Leroy Stevens comes out and he's sitting with us. He takes out a cigarette and he starts smoking it and smoking it. He never lights it. Dave and I are watching this and say, you know, what's going on? There's something different. Of course, we didn't know that just prior to that, Gacy had confessed to them that he had killed 33 people. It was around 8.30 that morning that Gacy came out of the building, didn't approach us at all, and just got into his car. Gacy was totally out of it and left there like a wild man. We went to various uh, locations. He stopped at his house very briefly, came back out. At this point, he hadn't shaved for a couple of days. He's, he's slouching. His whole demeanor is different. Uh, we're pretty sure that he confessed uh, to killing at least Rob Peast. He pulled into a gas station, and as he was going into the station, he gave the young attendant a bag of marijuana. Dave and I are speaking back and forth on our portable radios, you know, something strange is going on here. I go inside the uh, gas station. As soon as I get in there, these young guys are throwing this marijuana at me and say, hey, we didn't buy this stuff. This guy's just giving us away. You know, we didn't ask for it, anything. So at this point, Gacy seems just to be giving away things. And so we're following him again, and then Gacy is driving down the Kennedy Expressway into the city, and his head is kind of bobbing. But I'm honking the horn next to him because this is, you know, 9, 9.30 in the morning and a lot of traffic on the Kennedy, and I thought he was going to hurt somebody else. So I didn't have a siren. I just could use the horn. Uh, so I pulled up next to him. Actually, I thought he was shaving. I thought he had an electric shaver on him. But it was his rosary. And he's really driving recklessly, and he's almost like uh, incoherent. He's weaving in and out of traffic and going lane to lane. We then follow him to uh, David Cram's house, one of his employees, picks up David Cram, and then David Cram takes the wheel and they drive to DeLeo's restaurant. Gacy runs in the restaurant. He must have had a friend at the restaurant. By now it's noon and Ron Robinson and Bob Schultz arrive for the shift change. But there's no shift change today. It's all hands on deck. David Cram jumps out of the car and comes up and says, hey, Gacy just confessed to me that he killed 33 people, and I think he's going to commit suicide. So we had to come up with something, and we were going side by side, Bob and I, with Dave and uh, Ron in the other car, and trying to figure out what we're going to do. We have in our back pocket this marijuana deal that went down a couple hours earlier at the gas station. So we decided, hey, we better stop them while we can. 
and arrest him for this marijuana charge and then take our investigation from there. Ron, do you remember when he was arrested? Oh, sure. I stuck my gun in his ear. Along with, and I want to be very clear with this, along with Dave Hackmeister, Mike Albrecht, and Bob Schultz. I just happened to get to the car first. I jumped out, ripped open the door of uh, his car, and we didn't know if he had a gun or not, so I had mine drawn. Literally, I stuck it in his ear, told John to get out of the car. He said to me, Ron, what's wrong? I thought we were friends. And then Dave Hackmeister come up to him, and Dave started calling him every name in the book. And he was doing that for a reason. He was trying to get John really riled up or John would just blurt out what he had done. John didn't say anything. He just got mad at Dave for calling him all those nasty things. By now, prosecutors had the second search warrant and were racing to Gacy's house. Gacy, meanwhile, claimed he was having a heart attack, so they had to detour and take him to the hospital. Just as I get into the hospital, they say, okay, Gacy's ready to be released. There's nothing wrong with him. Just before when I put him in a squad car, I get a phone call. I said, we went in a crawl space, and the first shovel of dirt that we dug up, there was bones in it. And I turned to Gacy, and I said, John, you're under arrest for murder. They have the victims in your crawl space. I was elated. I had to try to be calm and cool, but it was like most unbelievable thing that ever happened to me. At the Des Plaines police station, a ton of people crammed into a very small room. Gacy, his two lawyers, the four surveillance guys, Dave, Bob, and Ron, and Mike. Mike was taking notes, and two sheriff's investigators sat on the floor. Gacy, at this point, really wanted to talk, and he was really comfortable with the TAC unit. You know, he thought that he could express himself best with us. So he wanted to confess, but to us. He just opened up like you've never seen before. He confessed to 33 murders in unbelievable detail. It actually made the hair on the back of your head stand up. It was unbelievable. And he was like bragging to us about these murders. We tried to remain uh, as calm as we could listening to this and how he tortured these young men. He knew exactly where he buried them. He buried 27 in the crawl space. Uh, there was one in the backyard, and uh, he threw five in the displaced river only because he ran out of room in the crawl space. When you say he got into great detail, what was he telling you, like how he killed them? He would get young men into his house and show them a variety of different tricks. He knew some magic tricks and things like that. And then he would show them what he called a handcuff trick and he would handcuff himself and struggle a little bit and then turn around, put his back to his victim and turn back around and he'd have the handcuffs off. And the young man would say, well, that's pretty neat, how'd you do that? So he'd throw him the handcuffs and he said, well, here, handcuff yourself and I'll show you how to do it. So unwittingly, these young men would handcuff themselves and once they were incapacitated like that, you would do the rope trick and that's, almost like a tourniquet. He would slip a, a, a rope that was tied at both ends, put it over the victim's head, and then he would take a, about a 12-inch stick and put it behind their head in between the rope and slowly turn that rope. 
and it would eventually kill the young man. But he said he headed down to such a science that while he was killing Rob Peace, he got a phone call. He was able to leave Peace, walk to the phone, talk to whoever had called him, and go back and torture the young man and kill him. During the confession, Gacy blamed the victims. He, he put no blame on himself at all. He said, once I paid for sex, they were mine to do whatever I had to do with them. When somebody talks to you about doing something like what he did, you know, it, it's, it's, it's just mind-boggling, you know. You can't believe what you're hearing. He hadn't been processed for the murder. So I took him in the back, had another officer that was uh, doing the fingerprinting, and I was going to take the mugshot. So part of the process of filling out the arrest report, I said, John, uh, what state were you born in? He looks at me, he starts grinning. He says, you know what, Mike? I was born in a state of confusion. And when he said that is when he clicked the, the picture and Gacy's smiling here thinking he was, he thought that was pretty funny. It's unbelievable that he would do this after all this and he's still joking. Yes, he's, this is when he was starting to uh, realize the notoriety he was getting and he embellished that notoriety. Initially, how we all thought, man, when we get an arrest, we're going to go out and party. We're going to have the biggest party of our lives. But there was no partying after the confession. It was very somber. You know, we all kind of went our separate, separate directions at that point. John Gacy killed 33 people, 33 young men. And that's the families of that. But it, it, bubbles out to so much more than that. The ripple of all the the relatives within that family, all the friends and so forth. So the hundreds of thousands of people that Gacy impacted with these these murders that he committed. Gacy's crimes rocked the nation. Bodies in a basement, all young males. His lawyers mounted an insanity defense, and it didn't work. It took the jury only one hour and 45 minutes to find John Wayne Gacy guilty of murdering 33 young men. At the time, only 18 victims had actually been identified. Gacy was sentenced to death. John Gacy, the killer clown, didn't fade away. Oh no, he made the most of his notoriety while on death row. Something the state's attorney's office warned everyone about. Here's what they said. You will be dealing with an intelligent, devious, glib, articulate, engaging, and sadistic person. As far back as 1967 in Iowa, he was capable of using anyone in any way to accomplish his evil purposes. He's a con man, a malingerer, a skilled torturer, and an equally skilled killer. Accept his word at your peril. We're going to talk to one man who did. Gacy was a braggart. He always wanted to get others involved. He got me involved. Gacy couldn't have done it alone, just like people like Dean Coral and Norman. In, in the beginning, when I first heard about your case, I thought, oh yeah, this guy is really guilty as all hell. But when I started going into the case, I started finding a lot of things that didn't make sense, you know? If I was as guilty as everybody wants you to believe, then I would have been executed. 
long time ago. That's next on Episode 7, My Friend the Murderer. The Clown and the Candyman is an original podcast from ID and Cineflix Media. The show is written and hosted by me, Jacqueline Bynan. The series producer is Tara Hughes. John White is our editor with mixing by VO2 in Toronto. And the executive producer for ID is Tim Bainey. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.